Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Morgan Brennan and Mike Santoli. Kramer and David Faber have the morning off. Pre-market pretty steady as we come off of those uh, record highs for Nasdaq Russell. Of course, stimulus relief gets a last-minute curveball, but market is more focused on this government deal for new Pfizer vaccines. Jobless claims better than expected and core durables disappointed. Our roadmap begins with that deal for Pfizer. 100 million more doses are set to come by the end of July. Then is a new rule for direct listings, the end of the traditional IPO. We're going to explain that this hour as well. And finally, Tim Cook refused a meeting with Elon Musk three years ago at a potential buyout of Tesla. That is, according to Musk, those details are next. Carl. Guys, let's talk about uh, the setup as we get uh, this day and then half a day tomorrow before we break for the Christmas weekend, Mike. I mean, typically when we head into this period, it's about thin liquidity and a lack of news. That's not the case this morning. No, it's not. We're not worried about the lack of news right now. Actually, there's plenty uh, to chew on. And in terms of liquidity, I mean, the market has been, you know, kind of just slowly churning at the aggregate index level. Um, It's been sort of consolidating for a while at the S&P. But then you look at parts of the market that are just racing higher. There's all this sort of uh, very high energy activity going on in small caps, in alt energy, in IPO, uh, recent IPOs. And so it's a very interesting uh, market here where if you're an indexer, you feel like the market's just been kind of snoozing uh, for a little while right here and trying to metabolize this news because we did price in a lot of, uh, you know, probably the upturn that's expected in 2021 with that that big uh, post-election rally. But then you have all this uh, this other activity going on uh, that I do think is kind of fascinating, might actually continue to be the story uh, next year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got the Dow and the S&P to that point that are, what, about 1% below record highs uh, here in in the pre-market in terms of where they're poised to open. NASDAQ also poised to open at a fresh record high. I mean, to your point about the small caps, the Russell 2000 is what, doubled since uh, that low that we reached in in March? And and then there are these pockets of frothiness. Um, Great case in point here is is the valuation of Carvana. I've had more than one conversation in the last 24 hours around some of these valuations of some of these more internet-focused, uh, tech-focused uh, names. I mean, Carvana, let's see, three times the market cap of CarMax, which is the largest used car dealer in the country. Revenues are four times that of Carvana. So you're just seeing these pockets of I think for probably longer-term investors that have, that have been in this market for, for, for some time, um, maybe a detachment from fundamentals, which does seem to be overall kind of the theme, given the crazy news cycle we've seen of this year of 2020, Carl. 
Um, yeah, it sort of brings to mind, you know, this is typically the period, guys, where we begin to see predictions for the following year. Uh, today it's Wells Fargo, Mike. Uh, they say that Tesla's addition to the S&P marks the beginning of the end of the historic momentum tech run. They compare it to AOL. Uh, they say ultimately the growth at any price approach is not sustainable. Uh, you'd expect to see more of these big calls coming in the, uh, in the coming days. Yeah, uh, I think you could also make the argument that the entry of Tesla into the S&P was something like Yahoo going in. Actually, that was very similar price action. Uh, it was sort of this ratification that the markets, uh, you know, granting of an enormous market value to something that didn't have tremendous profitability. It was just the, the kind of wave of the future finally gets into the index. And, you know, several months later, that was when you had a historic market peak. I do think there's something to the fact that um, the S&P 500 has almost become, you know, the buyer, the incremental marginal buyer of some of these massive high concept growth names that have now tremendous uh, market values. I don't know if that means the overall market. Um, uh, you know, has its destiny already written because of that. But it's it is a very fascinating thing. And, and if you look at the overall alternative energy type space, anything battery, anything hydrogen, uh, anything that's going to be a charging station, it's going wild right now. And it's essentially uh, just kind of taking a little bit of that manic energy that Tesla had all the way up. Uh, and, and people are looking for the next one. And we looked at it yesterday. FUBU TV is the next Roku, which was the next Netflix. So we're going down into uh, the also what, what you could call also rands or just the up and comers. It's a venture type attitude, I think, uh, with, with a lot of indiscriminate cheap capital that's looking for the next massive winners. Yeah, I mean, to that point, we're speaking to one of those next EV levered uh, companies to go public, going public uh, today, actually, XL, I think, in the next hour. Um, that being said, also, I, I got to wonder, with Tesla joining the S&P 500, I mean, there's been a lot of talk ahead of this on, on what it would do to volatility in that name specifically. Um, you got to think that maybe some of the traders and, and some of the funds out there uh, that are going to be seeking or that had traded in and out of Tesla, keeping it as liquid as it was, um, to sort of chase those gains not tied to an index, that that, that money is going to find some of these other names and maybe perhaps is also going to fuel some of the high-flying high movements that, we, that we've seen as well. Uh, meantime, though, we continue to keep our eye on the healthcare space, specifically vaccines. Pfizer and BioNTech striking an agreement with the U.S. government to supply an additional 100 million doses of their COVID-19 vaccine. Meg Terrell joins us now with the details. Meg. Hey, Morgan. Well, this is another 100 million doses. We should get 70 million of those doses by the end of June, the end of the second quarter next year, 30 million to be delivered by the end of July. This really doubles the number uh, that we've got from Pfizer. They're paying the same amount for these 100 million that they did for the first, almost $2 billion. Uh, so this together with the 200 million already agreed upon with Moderna would be enough for 200 million Americans to be vaccinated by the middle of next year. Uh, now, here is how the rollout has been going over the last couple weeks, they have allocated almost 11 million doses uh, between Pfizer and Moderna together. Uh, we are expecting an update today from Operation Warp Speed this afternoon, where we should learn what the allocations are for next week, how much will be going out. Uh, as for the pace of actually being able to administer these vaccinations, we are getting data from the CDC, but there is a couple days lag um, as of Monday morning, and so the numbers must be higher than this now. We just haven't seen from CDC yet. 4.6 million doses have gone out across the the United States, 614,000 of those administered. Uh, but again, guys, these numbers must be higher as of today because this was two days ago. I'm hitting refresh on the CDC website to see what the new numbers are. 
Um, but there will be many questions about how quickly can we get these doses out? Um, 20 million are expected to be allocated uh, you know, by the end of December, and that will go into the first week of January, actually getting those shots in arms. That will almost cover the entire top priority group in terms of vaccinations, healthcare workers and nursing home residents. And then we start to go into the next priority groups, guys. So uh, this happening quickly. And in January, we're expecting J&J data as well, guys. Yeah, uh, we were crossing our fingers on on the J&J part. That's for sure, Meg. As for that last mile, uh, we're starting to get word now from the CVSs and the Walgreens of the world that they are going to need to hire more pharmacy techs, more healthcare workers to, to administer those vaccines to the general population. Are you getting any sense that there's going to be a bit of a labor crunch on that last mile? Yeah, this is something we've kind of been hearing about uh, as people have been preparing for this massive vaccination campaign. How do we just find enough people to administer these shots? And so, you know, we have been hearing and our colleagues have been reporting about needing to find the folks to be able to do this, not just CVS and Walgreens. But, you know, there's talk about employing everybody across the healthcare space to help give these shots. Dentists, ophthalmologists, I mean, really anybody who uh, could be in a medical you know, role <laughs> helping give these shots, because we're talking about trying to vaccinate, you know, 260 million. Americans, the, the adults who are indicated for these vaccines. Uh, and that's a lot of people, especially if we're trying to get them done by the middle of next year. Yeah, it's pretty breathtaking in, in terms of the logistical operation that, that we're watching here on a day-by-day day and hour-by-hour hour basis, Meg. I'm also curious, though, because even as we see these vaccines roll out, we talk about securing new supplies into next year. I mean, in the midtime, we do see the coronavirus cases, the hospitalizations, the death numbers continue to climb in the meantime. Um, and to that point, we're seeing more strides, it seems, on the therapeutic side of things, too. I mean, the news from, from Merck this morning about M. K. 7110 uh, as a treatment for people with severe or critical COVID-19. Do you expect we're going to continue to see more of these types of, um, I guess, therapeutics roll out in a bigger, more meaningful way in the meantime as well? Yeah, the therapeutic area is still important. I mean, it's going to take a long time for us to get enough people vaccinated that we can actually stop this pandemic. And in the meantime, drugs play a hugely important role. That specific drug from Merck, uh, you know, it showed in a small trial to be incredibly helpful uh, for people who have severe COVID-19. The problem is it's a difficult drug to make. So Merck acquired mm. the company that makes it and they're trying to ramp up the production. And so uh, this is a deal to supply that to the U.S. government. Government. It's very exciting and it hasn't gotten as much attention because of those production issues, most likely. There are also the antibody drugs, which we've heard are not getting used because of the complexity of administering them. So that's something the U.S. government is really trying to draw attention to. Huh. And the last thing is, of course, these pills uh, for COVID that we should hear about from Merck and uh, potentially others relatively quickly. Meg, a lot to watch. A lot of pots boiling on this uh, one of the final weeks of the year. We'll talk to you later. Meg Terrell uh, on the Pfizer vaccine development today. In the meantime, we're going to watch the finalization of this uh, stimulus package as the president last night posts a video on Twitter blasting that relief bill, saying that direct payments don't go far enough, called it a disgrace, although he stopped short of explicitly saying he would veto it. Take a listen. The bill they are now planning to send back to my desk is much different than anticipated. It really is a disgrace. I am asking Congress to amend this bill and increase the ridiculously low $600 to $2,000 or $4,000 for a couple. I'm also asking Congress to immediately get rid of the wasteful and unnecessary items 
from this legislation and to send me a suitable bill or else the next administration will have to deliver a COVID relief package and maybe that administration will be me. In response to the comments, House Democrats say they're going to try to work on a standalone bill for those direct payments under unanimous consent, but that's a high bar given that any single member uh, can kill it. Mike, as for the political uh, ramifications, uh, it, what does it say about the Treasury Secretary, who not only came on our air to cheer the bill when the deal was reached, but according to Treasury, participated in 190 calls about the bill with the president, with Treasury staffers, with congressional leaders uh, as it was getting finalized. Exactly. And, and the, the final version of this, in typical fashion, was, was kind of a nobody got everything they wanted. And the $600 part of it seemed to more come from Senate Republicans and, of course, the Treasury Secretary very much involved uh, in all this stuff. It's very difficult, I think, from just from the market's point of view, if I watch how that things traded overnight and into the morning, uh, it's not necessarily saying this deal is off the table or it's unlikely. It's just, well, now we know what the floor is in terms of uh, the amount of money getting out. And who knows, maybe there can be a little bit of a boost to it. But it's very difficult to say that this was, you know, an assertion of intention of a veto or anything like that. So I think we're here uh, a little bit, um, you know, in a fog of, of not quite sure what the next move is, but also thinking that it's a when, not if question uh, in terms of stimulus. It does complicate the issue, though, because a lot of these benefits expire and yeah. we just don't know what the congressional calendar is going to allow. Yeah. And of course, we're having this conversation as we've seen some weaker than expected, or at least maybe it was expected, just weakening economic data coming out, including just this morning. Uh, I guess 190 calls. I guess it needed to be 191 um, in terms of this. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, we were talking about a 5,600-page document. I mean, it would be crazy not to think that there is all kinds of pork and, you could argue, uh, unattached or even wasteful spending folded up in this. I mean, the Smithsonian... Museums are getting a lot of attention, but there's other things. There's things like carbon capture initiatives and, and, and other items that don't necessarily directly have to do with stimulus uh, as it stands in, in this very moment. So perhaps the president's not wrong or it makes sense for him to go on the record calling that out. But, of course, this does lead to more question marks. The other thing in terms of veto um, that I'm keeping an eye on is the National Defense Authorization Act, which is that big $740 billion spending, defense spending bill um, that the president has threatened to veto as well uh, via Twitter in recent days. Today's the last day for him to actually sign or make an active veto move on that bill. If he doesn't, then it actually goes into effect without his signature tomorrow. So that's another one to keep an eye on, um, because that is also uh, quite a sum of money. And um, I think it's been 59 years that we've had some sort of NDAA that has yeah. moved through, maybe not on time, but that has moved through without a veto. So it would be very notable if we did see that. And it's still not exactly a foregone conclusion that Congress would override that veto. Yeah, it's weird. Some, some have pointed out we could see a shutdown, a pocket veto, and a veto override uh, all in the same month. Uh, just an amazing period uh, in uh, legislative America as the government would shut down on Monday. We'll take a break here. Plenty of market stuff to get to, including a new street high on Disney, as well as goes to 201. And what Elon Musk said about selling to Apple years ago. We're back in a What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, 
a leading global asset manager. Imagine Apple buying Tesla. Uh, Elon Musk says he once mulled such an idea. Yesterday he tweeted, during the darkest days of the Model 3 program, I reached out to Tim Cook to discuss the possibility of Apple acquiring Tesla for one-tenth of our current value. He refused to take the meeting as in response to an ongoing uh, Twitter chain, Morgan. Interesting, although uh, not, I guess, surprising that Tim Cook might uh, not consider that seriously. I I guess so. I mean, I I don't understand... I don't understand how you don't at least take a meeting. But uh, I also realize that if we're talking about a couple years ago, things were looking very different for Elon Musk and for Tesla. Um, Perhaps at least from the Tesla investor, Tesla stalwart uh, fan base, if you will, probably the best thing that could have happened, just seeing what happened with this company now included in the S&P 700, almost $700 billion market cap. uh, It seems that standing alone and not being acquired by Apple uh, has fueled quite exactly what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, quite the craze when it comes to EVs, self-driving cars, and everything else, Mike. Well, I, you know, I don't know exactly what we're supposed to take from this bit of hindsight. Like, who, who, who perhaps had the, the greater lost opportunity? So what, what Musk is saying is Apple, let's say a year and a half, two years ago, could have had a Tesla for $60 billion. At some point a year and a half ago, Tesla traded down to about a $30, $35 billion market value. So that shows you what the market thought of, of the struggles they were having at the time. Yeah. Um, there's not a chance that if Apple acquired it, it would represent within Apple anything like the current value, because this is being driven by this pure vision of magic and heroism that Tesla's going to save the world you know, behind one man's vision. So I, the other thing is Apple I, famously does not like uh, t- tends not to do big acquisitions. Six years ago, they made a three billion dollar acquisition of Beats. And you yeah. would have thought that they were, you know, Dancing on Steve Jobs' grave. I mean, the way people reacted to <laughs> what they did for $3 billion, a trivial, a trivial amount of money, you could only imagine what the Apple backers would have said about something like this. Yeah, absolutely. I also got to think that some of the exuberance we do see in Tesla, um, limited though it may be, is also probably the strides we've seen in SpaceX as well, which has also had quite the gangbusters year, a really couple of years. Well, let's take a look at how futures are trading as we count down to the opening bell right now. Uh, we are, uh, we've seen a reversal from overnight, and uh, actually they're starting to gain a little bit here uh, in this final 11 minutes uh, before the opening bell. The S&P is poised to open up 10 points. Uh, the Dow is poised to open up more than 100, and the NASDAQ uh, is on pace for a gain of about five or six points, which would be actually uh, a new record high for the NASDAQ uh, if we see that in the next couple of minutes. In the meantime, Squawk in the Street will be right back. Stay with us. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation. 
The SEC has approved the NYSE's plan for a new type of direct listing. It would allow companies to issue new shares and sell them directly to the public on the first day of trading. Such a move would enable companies to raise money on the exchange without paying underwriting fees to Wall Street banks. Benchmark's Bill Gurley reacted to the plan yesterday on Closing Bell. I think it would be very hard for anyone to argue, whether it's a traditional IPO or a SPAC, that that's going to be better than a direct listing with a primary offering. This is so elegant, so efficient. Um, it actually has fewer steps than an IPO. Um, it, it's, it's wonderful. I, I do think every single company will move this route. Yeah, and to be clear, Carl, I mean, Bill Gurley's been one of the big advocates of this type of, of innovation, and he's a, he's a big critic of the current IPO process that involves, you know, often a big pop on the first day, which shows the public demand for shares were greater than the underwriters either allowed for or priced against. And, um, you know, you're not going to get pops, so that's either a benefit or a drawback, depending on how you think about it. But the idea that um, somehow every company is therefore not going to look for an underwritten offering uh, through investment bankers and is just going to say, I'll take whatever trading range, you know, uh, I get on the first trade with no lockup. So it's interesting. I mean, because some of the direct listings without a capital raise, as you know, Carl, have, you know, it's been a mixed record, at least in their way they've traded initially, such as Slack and Spotify. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's historic in many ways uh, as we watch the NYSE both on that front, Morgan, and this news that they're going to send some uh, designated market makers back to remote uh, working beginning Monday because of the spike in New York City. But uh, Mike's right. Gurley's been uh, an advocate, a loud voice on this, and we'll see how this works. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just also think it's interesting. I mean, we're talking about direct listings and, and new rules that could, you know, upend and, and change that more traditional IPO structure, structure. But in this year of the SPAC attack, if you will, I mean, that has been, while not a direct listing, that has been another way for companies through this reverse merger process to, to go public without, uh, you know, all those IPO fees and raise money as well. So I think that probably has also, as we've had this conversation, um, contributed to the rise in SPACs we've seen too. You got you got to wonder, Carl. Oh my gosh, yeah, eight SPACs filed for IPOs in the past 24 hours. That's it. And 12 SPACs in the 24 hours before that, <laughs> as Axios points out today. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. Don't go anywhere. Watch Disney today. Uh, it's come off of the high of uh, 179.45 back on December 11th. Today, Wells goes to 201. Mike, I thought that was the street high, but I was mistaken because Rosenblatt also goes to 210 today uh, from 155. And we're starting to see uh, Wells, for example, we think EV on subs is a better metric than EV yeah. sales. So once these metrics start adjusting, uh, things get a little more interesting. No doubt about it. And the market has embraced this for Disney. It doesn't always do this with a, with a big company that's got a lot of slower growth businesses mm. uh, where they're just going to capitalize it based on the new, exciting, fast-growing one. But Disney's obviously got instant scale here. And it is interesting, though, to go to uh, enterprise value on subs as opposed to uh, revenues because they do trail Netflix by a lot in average revenue per user because they're priced lower uh, and they have a lot of introductory offers out there. So that's a way of, of kind of getting around, uh, you know, essentially having that uh, penalization of uh, the penalty on, on Disney for having lower ARPU, uh, Morgan. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty incredible, though, just to look at this chart, just even the last three months to look at this chart. I mean, yes, we're, we're slightly off the highs, but trading at 170 right now is at like 120 and change back three months ago. Um, Keep in mind, like some of those parks, uh, for example, are still closed in the middle of coronavirus as well. So I think to your point, even though this seems to be repricing to to as a more direct comparable to Netflix, I mean, you still do have all of these other segments that have been hit hard by coronavirus.
anyway. Uh, yeah, we're, and Disney's a, such a great story because we'll watch how the hybrid model works now. Uh, yeah. Wonder Woman, of course, launches this week uh, for Warner. Uh, that will tell us a lot, even more about the streaming environment. And, of course, the vaccine rollout has huge implications for the return of the parks. Uh, so we'll watch that closely, guys, as we get uh, the opening bell here in a couple of minutes or a couple seconds as the NYSC brings in electric vehicle company XL Fleet celebrating a listing. We're going to talk to the CEO in the next hour. At the NASDAQ, it's Postmaster General Louis DeJoy and the USPS Operation Santa doing the honors. Huh. And Morgan, I don't know if you've seen some of the metrics on delivery times this month. It's not good. Oh, you know I've been watching the metrics on delivery times. Um, I, let's see, I have it here. I think it's 86% for the post office right now, according to Ship Matrix. That number is really rough. I mean, that represents millions and millions of packages that are delayed right now. I'll tell you, personally, in my house, I have two packages that seem to be lost within the USPS network right now. I can't, can't get a tracking hold on them. Um, so definitely, mm. this could be one of those... We've seen it before. One of those uh, Christmases where some presents don't make it under the tree. Uh, but I do think it's also very notable that UPS and FedEx, there have been a lot of reports on this, that UPS and FedEx have, um, you know, not taken additional packages over what they agreed to with retailers, which I think is why some of that is flooding into the postal service network right now. But taking a look at There's the markets, <laughs> um, it is green. It's a, it's a sea of green here for the S&P um, with most names higher. And Carl, I'll send it back over to you for a, a deeper read on that. Yeah, no, I had 3,700 here, Mike. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and Morgan mentioned earlier, um, Russell outperforming S&P for the year. They haven't done that since 2016. I guess, well, how does that carry over into the new year, if at all? Yeah, huge question. It's On a two-year basis, actually, the Russell has caught up to the S&P. So you think about how long we talked about how small caps were completely neglected and bereft, and here they are. They've done a full catch-up on a two-year look back, which is quite amazing. But also, the Russell 2000, Chris Fronover, strategic is this morning, pointing out, it's basically never been more overbought, which means it's, it's farther above its you know, 200-day average than it has been pretty much uh, in memory. Uh, now, used to be the January effect, strictly speaking, was small caps and laggards outperforming uh, big caps and the overall market. Well, we've done that. I mean, that's, that's sort of in the books. Nobody's saying that today it stops and, and it's, uh, it's got to be a give back in, in January. But a lot of what's happened uh, recently has been exactly that type activity. And, you know, 3,700, you mentioned, Carl, it's really fascinating because all month we've been 3,700 plus or minus. Sell-offs have been very limited, but also mm -hmm. not a lot of energy on the upside. Uh, as we've seen things like Russell small cap growth, uh, you know, the subsets uh, of, uh, of small caps have just been absolutely flying up, you know, 20 something percent or, up, you know, 15 or so percent this month, whereas the market overall is, is flat. So people are grabbing for uh, the stuff that moves the fastest, uh, that seems the most exciting and has a lot of uh, catch up potential. So that's where the speculation is going on, as opposed to, let's say, late August, where it was in all the dominant mega cap stocks that, that got the Nasdaq 100 to that very uh, sharp peak. It's interesting to see energy, the best performing sector in the S&P right now. It looks like 10 out of 11 sectors in the S&P are higher, but energy um, catching a bid. And that's despite that build, that unexpected build in uh, crude oil inventories that, that we got uh, in terms of a data point after the bell last night. And the fact that you do have these economic concerns, um, the spread of COVID, the spread of this potentially you know, more contagious strain of COVID uh, that has been weighing on the energy complex and, and also other economically sensitive commodities like copper as well. That seems to be not the case this morning, Mike. 
No, absolutely not. Uh, it's been day by day. I mean, it had a little bit of a give back in terms of uh, energy stocks uh, and crude as well. So it's been kind of, it's interesting that you've had these days where traditional fossil fuel based energy has done pretty well right alongside all the battery tech and everything else. And and just to that point, I mean, Tesla uh, opens up down again uh, today by almost two percent on a week to date basis down nine and a half percent. That's really just the spillback from uh, the stampede of into that stock, into the index inclusion uh, on Friday. It seems to me that essentially you had people having to sell everything else in the S&P uh, if you're an index fund to buy a Tesla. And everybody was sort of riding along with that trade. So we've had this give back. And yesterday, you know, Apple rallying a fair bit on that report of its own uh, its own potential car, uh, you know, is a little bit of uh, you know, it seemed like a little much, given the fact that it's a two point two trillion dollar company, that this is going to be three years away. Uh, but that is also sliding back a little bit. Apple is giving back some of yesterday's gain down half a percent. Carl. Yeah. Uh, Tesla down, obviously less than two percent, but it's the worst performing S&P name at the moment. Speaking of the EV space, guys, you know, in the commercial space on EV, it's uh, it's been sort of uh, two steps forward, one step back today. It's Nikola and Republic Services who are uh, stopping their work on developing a zero emissions garbage truck. Uh, back in August, Republic said, let's work on this together. We'll buy twenty five hundred of these once they get developed, but longer than expected development time, Morgan, and longer than expected costs. Uh, so with that, Nikola is down uh, more than 10 percent. Yeah, looking at that, I mean, it's incredible. The run it had higher, this stock, and now basically the, the fall from grace that we have seen uh, in the last couple of weeks, last couple of months on that name. Uh, I mentioned it earlier in the show, and, and certainly they rang the opening bell uh, this morning over at the stock exchange, but we do have XL on uh, later today to talk about this. And of course, they do play in this commercial uh, electric vehicle market as well, more focused on on plugins and basically providing the technology that adapts existing car and truck models um, for commercial use. Uh, it'll be interesting to hear what that looks like versus some of these other EV companies like Nikola that have been putting that money, that capital intensive um, business model out there to actually develop their own cars themselves, Mike, which I think also goes back to the conversation we're having about Apple and what self-driving, uh, a self-driving vehicle would actually look like for that company, too, sure. given the fact that margins tend to be very tight and it tends to take a lot of money to get there. Right. And it's certainly, you know, the one advantage Tesla has had to a degree very recently is just open-ended access to pretty pretty cheap capital because of what the stock has done and the debt markets have been. Well, Apple can basically match or beat Tesla on that front if it really wants to go big here. We don't quite know what the scale of the ambitions are. What, what's fascinating about the, the Nikola story in general is it's such a gold rush mentality and you have so many upstarts who seem to have something promising and the established players just grabbing at connections to them that you did get GM with a supply deal and you did get Republic Services saying, well, think about, you know, and, and it turns out that maybe things weren't ready, but there's another one right behind Nikola, no doubt about it, uh, that's also probably in a SPAC right now that's waiting for for some of these joint ventures to uh, to be reformed right yeah mike i'm, I'm curious to know um, uh, broadly more on the macro front what you think the next catalyst is going to be x sort of stimulus drama uh is it about the georgia senate runoff i noticed we mentioned that wells list of predictions this morning their view is that uh, mcconnell will uh, keep control, become the most powerful person on the Hill, uh, as they think probably at least one seat uh, in Georgia remains with the GOP. 
Right. There's no doubt, you know, if you're looking at the next, you know, 100 feet of pavement, it, that's the thing that, that people are going to fixate on. Um, it's a process. It's polling. It's something you can handicap. The market can trade off the, the headlines beforehand and the, and the predicted uh, odds. So, yes, that'll matter. I don't think that the entire market's, you know, macro foundation is, is necessarily about further waves uh, of stimulus out there and whether it's a you know, 50-50 Senate, you know, 52-48, whatever it's going to be, 51-50, uh, you know, if, if the Democrats take both in Georgia. Uh, I think it is much more about uh, the pacing of, of, of the vaccine rollouts and just whether we can see evidence that this upturn that has now been pretty well priced into the market uh, is, uh, is, is showing up. Uh, I mean, that's, that to me is the big thing. And, and whether it's three or four month wait, do, do we run out of some patience? Uh, meantime, as, as yeah. parts of the market run so hot, uh, and the and the credit markets are so strong, it's keeping things together, but it's without that that sort of follow through on the macro. Housing seems great, but that's not really an incremental catalyst because we've already known it's great for months right now. Yeah, and of course, inventory there has been so, so tight even before we had this pandemic uh, hit, something Diana Olick has reported on since at least last year. Uh, I just wanted to mention XL Fleet, uh, which we were just talking about in its uh, first day of trading now as a public company, reverse merger through the SPAC is now up about Seven, almost eight percent. Again, we'll be talking to their founder in just a little while. Um, the other thing to watch, though, I, I would think, Mike, is going to be this dollar, the U.S. dollar. I mean, it's just that chart has been incredible just to watch the drop in the U.S. dollar. And what that's going to mean as we come to 2021, too, especially amid all of this stimulus. Um, and yes, I realize there's questions about how much more fiscal stimulus we get and what that means from a Fed standpoint as well. But just the incredible weakening. Uh, and you got to think that that has also been something that continues to add a floor under some of these uh, commodity prices as well. And of course, the run we've seen in Bitcoin as of late. Yeah, there's no, it's got a very feeble bounce over a couple of days. Now it's down again another, you know, half a percent or so today. So it's just kind of bumping along uh, those multi-year lows. It's very much fits in with the overall story of risk appetites high, liquidity high, people willing to go uh, far afield to find uh, things to invest in. But also the, the Treasury market's been fascinating because it has mm. had no give to it, even as we've had disappointments on the economic front. The 10-year yield, 0.94 today, had modest uh, positive surprise on unemployment claims, but not really material. It just seems as if there's a real uptrend uh, in place so far with Treasury. So, you know, uh, right now it's, it's, it's a very harmonious story the markets seem to be telling about cyclical upturn next year uh, globally and in the U.S. And, uh, and we're kind of priced for it at this point. Yeah, and of course that dovetails right back into the housing conversation too. I mean, you can get a 30-year fixed mortgage for less than 3% right now. Yeah. It's incredible, Carl. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, guys, two t twos, tens, uh, steepest since February of 18. And we did get a very uh, brief uh, a record high on the, the Nasdaq and the Russell. Let's get to Bob Pisani. Hey, Bob. Good morning, guys. Uh, yeah, yield curve steepening, and that's been a big help, of course, uh, to the banks recently. Those Friday announcements really helping as well. Uh, modest upside uh, today, four to one, advancing to declining stocks at the open. Take a look at the sectors. A uh, little more. Uh, there's your 10-year note, by the way. You see that moving up like that uh, when you get at the over 0.9 there. 0.95. People start paying attention. Banks are up to uh, on that uh, energy stocks uh, modestly on the upside, but they've been laggards, frankly, these cyclical names uh, for the last few days, uh, industrials as well, but they're modestly on the upside. And the, the, the more growth oriented 
technology and consumer discretionary lagging a little bit. What people keep buying every single day, and I sound like a broken record talking about these thematic tech ETFs, but every day, clean energy and solar stocks and 3D printing and lithium battery ETFs and uh, gaming ETFs, just people love buying these. The creations of these ETFs this year have been titanic. It's beginning about May when we saw real big movements, a lot of money moving around in these sectors. Uh, we are not quite in fourth quarter earnings season, but it's starting. And I'm a little concerned by what I'm starting to see here. It seems a little cautious. So remember what happened in Q2 and Q3. We had huge beats for everybody. And we saw rising numbers and positive commentary. Q4 and Q1 might be a little more cautious because of the fact that we're entering this COVID winter for the, last, for the next four or five months where we don't really know what's going on. But it seems like activity might be slowing down. I think CarMax yesterday had good earnings, but disappointing comp sales. And December was tracking down for them. So there's a little bit of an early warning sign. Here's another one. We've had 13 companies reporting. These are the early reporters. They have a November quarter ending. They've been beating these 13 companies, the Lenars, FedEx, Costco. They've been beating by almost 10%. That's pretty good. But this time, last quarter, they were beating by 28%. The beats were huge in the second and third quarter. These beats are much, much more modest. That's a second warning sign uh, that we're seeing out there. Number three, um, if you look at what the earnings season is going to be, I would pay a lot of attention to some of these consumer names that have come out early. There's a bunch that still have a November ending quarter. They're going to report the week of January 4th. So Bed Bath & Beyond, Constellation Brands, and Walgreens, and ConAgra, and even Carnival. Micron is, of course, uh, not a consumer name. But pay attention to what those companies have to say about They'll give November quarter, but they'll comment on December. And we'll see what's going on there. Delta will also be reporting. And then we really kick off on the 15th with J.P. Morgan and Citigroup. That's sort of the traditional start uh, of earnings season overall. Um, one thing I do want to point out, I think Mike mentioned this, is uh, growth is beating value. Here's another data point that indicates people are still nervous. They flee back to growth after a brief value outperformance. Uh, a, a couple of months ago, uh, S&P growth has been beating S&P value. In fact, S&P small cap growth is beating S&P small cap value by a small amount uh, as well. Small cap in general has just been having a fabulous uh, month overall. Finally, just about the, the comments on the NYSE allowing direct listings with a capital raise. This is great for issuers, of course. Uh, more direct listings, I think, uh, is good. Uh, there is some questions about the lockup periods for a lot of these direct listings. I think you're going to find that to be an issue. But remember something. It doesn't matter. These stocks are going to be treated as IPOs. They're going to go into the IPO ETF, for example. So investors overall should be fairly indifferent because people are going to be buying them in that manner through these IPO ETFs. And that's what's going to matter. And remember... Morgan, it's about the aftermarket returns. Some of these have done really well, direct listings. Palantir has. Others like Spotify and Slack, they took a much longer time to get up there. Uh, but overall, more public ownership, it's a good thing in yeah. general. Morgan, Some, back to you. Thanks, Bob. Some key context there. I'll just add another data point to, to add to the list here, and that is the ATA truck tonnage index. Uh, for November, it rose 3.7% after a big 5% yeah. drop in October. But um, they are warning that it's going to be choppy and that some of those seasonal patterns we normally see in trucking, which is an early indicator for economic growth more broadly, um, is, uh, is not following trends. So it's going to be, I think, freight flows is going to be a key one to continue to watch, too, in terms of where we're at with the, with the economic uh, picture here. All right, let's go over to Rick Santelli for a look at the bond report as well. Rick. Good morning, Morgan. Well, things are hot, hot, hot in the sovereign debt market. And remember, pretty much all central banks are in the same camp 
begins with a big S for stimulative, and you see all the sovereign debt moving together. They're not at the same level, but the patterns certainly are very similar. Look at an intraday of 10-year uh, notes hovering at 96 base points, getting very close to challenging the highest level since the COVID pandemic hit. Now look at boon yields. Mine is 53. They zoom in as well. So are the gilts in the UK at 27. All of these patterns are similar, and I think they really do underscore that for all practical purposes outside of uh, headlines, and there can be big headline risk uh, going into year end, that we are going to see many of the longs looking for lower rates capitulate and either liquidate by selling or new shorts go in because the big thing for 2021 is going to be AD after distribution of COVID, how are interest rates going to react and how are central banks going to try to control interest rates. Now look at a one week of tens. You can see we zoomed in the mid-90s like we have almost every other day. Look at Boone's for one week. Same exact pattern, trying to get into those mid-minus 50s, minus 55, minus 54. The key is going to be how they look on the close. Any type of close in 10-year U.S. above 97 or in Boone's uh, with a number smaller or less negative than minus 53 is going to have some follow-through. Finally, we've been talking about the yield curve. We've heard many, Mike Santoli, uh, Carl, Bob Pisani. Look at the yield curve. It goes back to the spring of 2018 since it's been as steep as it has, just about 84 basis points. But think about all the extremes going to the spring of 2018, whether it's the strength in the euro versus the dollar or the weakness in the dollar index. All these go to the same point. That makes perfect sense. And finally, here's the dollar index from last Thursday where it had the lowest close in 31 months, and that close was 89.82. Its intraday low, I believe, was 89.73. What are we now, a half cent away from that? That pretty much says it all. Mike, back to you. It sure does, Rick. Thanks very much uh, for wrapping it all together. Uh, as we head to a break, another look at the markets uh, early in today's trading. A little bit of a, a slightly mixed picture there. The, uh, the NASDAQ uh, gave up its early gain down about one-third of 1%. One S&P 500 uh, right at that 3,700 mark, up about a third of a percent. And the Dow outperforming on the day up by one-half a percent uh, to start things. We'll be right back. The pandemic's impact on the economy includes a staggering statistic about one billion hotel rooms unsold by Christmas. Our Seema Modi has more on that. Seema, I, I got to say I had to do a double take when I saw that in your intro. A jaw-dropping number, Carl. With fewer people traveling this holiday season, hotels are struggling to fill their rooms. The average occupancy rate in the U.S. has fallen to 38% this month compared to the 60% rate this time last year. The industry now getting close to hitting a milestone. It never thought it would see nearly 1 billion unsold rooms, according to data from SDR. And the migration to suburbs, the decline in international tourism this year, that's hit big cities particularly hard. Chicago, Houston, where more than half of hotels financed through the commercial mortgage-backed securities market are currently delinquent. In New York, high-profile properties from the Hilton Times Square, Omni Berkshire, have permanently shut their doors after missing a series of debt payments. Now, down in North Carolina, Vinay Patel, owner of nine hotels, says he's not only dealing with empty rooms, but a lack of pricing power. Now, if I get a hotel down in Charlottesville, we've got average rate of 150 and all of a sudden now the rate goes down to 99 to $100. So you're talking about one-third of revenue just displaced right there. 
The tail doesn't see demand returning to pre-COVID levels for another year or so. And then the question is, how does a vaccine change that timeline? UBS has been conducting a weekly survey asking around 10,000 respondents, how soon from now would you be comfortable traveling or going on a vacation four to six months out that camp has been steadily growing over the last few weeks on these vaccine headlines. But Morgan, Carl and Michael, then the question becomes, what choice will a consumer take? Will it be a hotel or will they stick with a home rental? Obviously, recent travel trends have worked in Airbnb's favor. Will that change with a vaccine? And will people want to start using their points that they have certainly accumulated before COVID hit? Yeah, I mean, so many questions here. That, that number is staggering. Sima Modi, thank you for bringing it to us uh, and the latest on what's happening in the hotel industry right now. Just taking a quick check on the markets. It's a mixed picture as the NASDAQ takes a breather today. But the S&P trades at 37.05 and the Dow is up about three quarters of a percent. We're going to take a quick commercial break. Getting some data this week on the number of chain stores in New York City that have closed because of the pandemic. It's from the Center for an Urban Futures annual State of the Chains report. 1,100 stores, including Dwayne Reed's, Starbucks, uh, Papyrus, have closed up shop over the past 12 months. That's a decline of more than 14 percent, although, Mike, not a surprise for anyone who's walked up an avenue uh, in Manhattan and seen uh, the decimation of retail, at least at the store level. Yeah. Storefront retail, very challenged even before the pandemic in Manhattan anyway, uh, really exacerbated. I mean, the New York magazine, Why We Love New York issue was why we've loved New York. And it was memorializing many dozens of, of small businesses that have been around for decades that, uh, that are gone. It's really unclear to see how this gets uh, kind of mopped up, Morgan. Yeah. And of course, we're talking about larger companies right now. Imagine what it's looking like for the mom and pop shops that don't necessarily have the resources um, to hang on. It's, it's potentially even worse. 37 percent. That's the number of restaurant and bar operators alone across the country who said they didn't expect their businesses to survive the next six months without help. That's according to the National Restaurant Association. It's a stat that was put out earlier this week. Over 110,000 restaurants and bars have closed for good or fallen dormant already in the midst of this pandemic. Um, it's 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 painful. It's, it's painful and it's sad to watch, Carl. Yep. Although we're hoping the bargain hunters come in and rejuvenate uh, once we get closer to uh, that vaccine nirvana, guys. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.